with Jesus, it wasn't as if he had sins to confess. He was pure, sinless. But it didn't mean that he had some, didn't have some growing to do. If you recognize that the plan for your life, in Jesus' case, is to take on the greatest assault that Satan could bring at you to face the greatest temptation that you could ever deal with, you don't just throw someone into that. There's almost a little drama with a baptism, the quick change. I'm wondering whether I'm going to come up here and my, my, my buttons are done incorrectly or I still have wet hair or wear. Uh, grateful that uh, God has uh, worked in Matea's life like that and we had uh, the joy of celebrating her baptism and what uh, God has done in bringing her uh, through this. Uh, today we are uh, back uh, Kids are back to school. We are back with a, uh, a new, new series that we're starting today. Uh, we're looking at the life of Joseph. And uh, the, the series is called uh, God at Work When We Can't See Him. Uh, we, we know from Scripture that we follow an invisible God. That means that we uh, can't often see what he is doing in our lives. And that often causes confusion for people who live by faith. At the same time, the scriptures give uh, hints and clues as to how God works so that we can anticipate him, so that we can uh, see who he is and how he works, and that can give us reassurance and understanding as we navigate our, our, our way through circumstances that can often feel uh, confusing and otherwise difficult. Uh, so for day, today, we're asking the question, why doesn't God just stop them? We're, we're looking at those, those times in our lives where evil people seem to succeed and we're trying to do what's right and there are obstacles from people who we just think, why doesn't God deal with that? Uh, a man by the name of Van, Vanderlei de Lima may have found himself asking that question. Uh, he, at the 2004 Athens Olympics, sought to do what no other Brazilian had ever done, bring home a medal in Olympic marathon. It seemed like it was his year. In 2003, he had won gold at the Pan Am Games. In 2004, he won the Hamburg, Olympic, the Hamburg Marathon. And as he headed into the Olympics, this seemed like an opportunity for him to show to uh, the people of Brazil that, yes, uh, Brazilians can win marathons too. He entered the race, the race began, and by the 35-kilometer mark, he had a good lead. He was ahead 25 seconds, victory seemed in sight, he headed into the final leg of the marathon. It was at that point that Inexplicably, out of the crowds came a 57-year-old Irish priest dressed in a green beret and a brown kilt, and he tackled uh, uh, Delima. He, he, from nowhere, uh, jumped on him and uh, stopped his run for Olympic gold. Uh, he recovered, security guards rushed in, uh, Greek uh, uh, 
uh, Athenian uh, spectators, they uh, helped him as well, got him back on his feet. He was able to continue. But by that point, uh, his momentum was gone. Two other, uh, two other uh, runners got ahead of him, and instead of gold that year, he brought home bronze. You, you look at a situation like that, and you think, why doesn't God just stop people? Why doesn't God just intervene to, to, to bring an end where this person was clearly in the wrong? They were, they, were, they were doing something that was just disrupting things and causing grief to a man who had given so many years of his life in preparation for trying to succeed. Those are the kinds of questions that sooner or later we all find ourselves asking. Uh, Non-Christians ask, ask those questions and they, they offer them as evidence that God isn't real, that, that, that believing in him is, is craziness. But Christians ask those same questions and they do so because they try to reconcile a God that is revealed in scripture as good, as all-powerful, and yet you look around at circumstances and I think, well, if I was good and if I was powerful, I think I would have stopped him. I think I would have, I think would have, you know, somehow blocked that person's path. That that I think I would have intervened. And if you've ever asked those yourself those questions, Scripture answers them, and it gives us an understanding of how God works, and it gives us clues when we're trying to make sense of what God might be doing. Uh, in our own lives. Uh, so I want to encourage you to turn to the scriptures with me this morning. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, on the, in the Black Church Bibles, in the, under the rack in, in the seat in front of you, it's on page 29. And I'm going to read the scripture in two sections this morning, first from verses 2 to 11, and then verses 23 to 28. Genesis 37, 2 to 11, 23 to 28, and we're on page 29 of the Black Church Bibles. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him 
But his father kept the saying in mind. And then picking up the story again at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of God. Now, while we have read a story, we have not read the entire story. It is like the first chapter of a multi-segment story. But as a beginning, it's a really terrible beginning, right? There is a family with conflict and hatred and jealousy. There is threats of murder, in fact, a plot to murder a brother. And then the happy resolution is human trafficking. You ask yourself, what kind of story is this? And what are we supposed to learn from it? But it teaches us about God's hidden working in those circumstances where we can't understand what's going on and we find ourselves asking, why doesn't God stop them? Why doesn't he intervene? And the first takeaway for us is that great plans don't mean easy easy paths. Your life may be full of promise. In fact, God may have made great promises to you. And you may have assumed that those great promises mean I'm going to have a great and easy life. But that is not the message of scripture. That you can in fact have a great promise from a great God and yet the path to that promise is one of difficulty, hardship, and suffering. Great plans don't mean easy paths. Now, as, it's, as it starts this story, it becomes clear that it's about this young 17-year-old kid named Joseph. Uh, he's introduced to us, and you get the impression that he's special right away because he's, he's got this special coat on. In fact, uh, when you have the musical of his life, when you have any reference to Joseph, you always think of him as he's the kid with a coat. He's a sheep herder. You don't need to get dressed up to go and herd sheep, and yet he goes around dressed like this little prince. And so you have this anticipation that he's something special. And then he has these dreams of greatness. In the one, his sheaf stands up, and the other ones are all bowing down to it. And you have the other, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars are bowing down to him, and you're thinking... This, this, this seems like this person is promised to be someone amazing. If it was just the one dream, you could have thought, well, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was indigestion. Two dreams sound like God's trying to get his attention. God's trying to send a message. And so we have lots of hope for his life. This is going to be someone whose, whose life is, is marked by the hand of God, 
blessing, greatness is upon him. And yet, that's not what we see in this chapter. We see something very different. In verse 5, when he tells his brothers the first dream, we learn they hated him. So he gives them another dream. And in verse 8, it says they hated him even more. By the time you get to verse 10, his father is rebuking him, telling him off now. And by the time we get to the end of our reading, they have first plotted his death, then they've sold him into slavery. How on earth does someone with such promise, someone for whom God has so clearly called them and blessed them and purposed great things for them, live in such pain and suffering and difficulty. Joseph's feeling betrayed and confused. If God has promised to bless me, why is my life so hard? What's going on? And maybe there are some of you here this morning that are feeling like that. It feels like there's a disconnect between God's promise and your reality between what, what God has, has, has destined for you and, and revealed about you in Scripture and what you're experiencing in the day-to-day. If this is him blessing you, you'd sure hate to know what it would be like to experience his cursing. How do you make sense of that? At the very least, we need to say that if you had gotten the impression that God's promises meant easy, that this, this passage is a wake-up call for you, that that is not the promise of Scripture. God may have great plans for you. He has, may have made great promises to you. In fact, he has if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that all of the difficulties are taken away. It doesn't mean that he stops that, that guy in the, the kilt and the beret from jumping into the, into the fray when you're heading towards Olympic gold. And so uh, we, we, we just recognize that great plans don't mean easy paths. But you might rightly say, Paul, that doesn't solve anything. That doesn't tell me why. And it still leaves me with more questions. And you would be right to ask that question. So that's where we're going to turn now. And, and here the, the, the next message is that, that great plans require your growth. A 10-year-old might be destined for the NHL, but throw him directly into a lineup and the first check might get him killed. That there, there may be a great destination, but the path there is going to involve some, some growing up, some strengthening. It's going to involve some discipline, some training, and that will come with difficulty. Great plans require your growth. Now, like in real life, the lessons of the Bible, particularly in the narrative portions, the stories of Scripture, they're not spelled out. God doesn't say, here's what I want you to, to understand from this passage. Instead, we're given the story, and then there are clues in that story to help us to see life lessons that we are, are, are trying to uh, discern and take away from. That's certainly the case here with Joseph. After, after telling us in verse 2 that he's only 17 years old, watch what he chooses to reveal about him. The very first thing that we are told about Joseph is that he brings a bad report about his brothers. Some of you have 
brothers like this, right? Some of you have sisters like this. Maybe some of you are brothers like this. If you're, if you're completely honest, you're the guy or you're the girl who goes and you just like to stir it up for your siblings with your parents and you know how to push the right buttons. Now, we, we're, we read this and we see this about Joseph's life and even before you keep on reading, you want to say, like, Joseph, this is a bad idea. Don't you know snitches get stitches? Like, this can't end well for you. We want to jump in there. And yet, it continues on. But the, the, the problem here is uh, not just that Joseph is a tattletale. In fact, in English, when we read bad report, it, it's a kind of a neutral term. They could have been doing something really terrible, and you thought, oh, I just... I, they, they, they might hurt themselves. I better go and report this before somebody, uh, somebody loses an eye. So in, in English, we read that it could have that sense. But the Hebrew term here is actually decidedly negative. Uh, it's the same term that's used when the spies go into the land. The 10 spies come back, and it says they brought a bad report about the land. Same thing is going on. It, it's, the, the land is good. They... they, they choose to negatively exaggerate uh, and, and uh, bring a, a, a report that skews things in their favor. Uh, in Proverbs 10.18, the, uh, the same word is translated as slander. And so this bad report is not just a neutral reporting, oh, I don't want them to get, in, get, get hurt, I'm doing this for their safety. We're learning very early on, J Joseph is a kind of guy who will exaggerate the facts to tell a good story if it thinks it, he, it will elevate him. And remember, while he's doing this, all the while he's wandering around in his very impressive little princely coat, feeling like he is in charge of everyone, feeling like he is the heir. He is the one who deserves all of the praise. And so we don't have a, a, a great... Uh, a, a great impression of him, even from that just quick opening. But what about the dreams? We, we, we understand that God has revealed these dreams to him, but if God reveals that you're going to be some kind of supreme leader with your family members bowing down to you in reverence, that's kind of a for your eyes only kind of thing, right? That, that's not something that you need to be sharing with your family members and saying, look what's going to happen to me. Because, you know, there, there are implications for them. And so he really didn't need to be sharing those things. But even if you said, no, Paul, let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. It, he, he didn't know how they were going to react. Maybe he's still young. But if you didn't know after the first dream, Surely by the second dream, you kind of know better, right? By the time you get to the second dream, he, he, he knows exactly what's going to, to be the response. And so you're reading this and you're thinking, how arrogant do you have to be to see that kind of hatred from your brothers after telling them this dream to then go and blurt out the second one? And so the impression that... that that, that the author is giving us here, Moses, in recounting this story, is making it clear that we, that we understand that Joseph is not just an innocent bystander. He is a young, immature, arrogant kid who 
frankly struggles to keep his mouth shut when he ought to and is blurting out things that are only uh, going to get him in trouble. And you read that and you think, boy, if this kid is catapulted straight into leadership, he's going to make a mess of things. If someone with this kind of pride and immaturity is immediately put in this position where, where, where people are coming before him and recognizing his authority and bowing down before him, he is going to be a dangerous person. He is going to cause great grief as a leader. As we read that story, that message is clear to us. The problem is, It's not clear to Joseph. He can't see it yet. And frankly, that's where we are typically at in our own lives. We we don't see the growing up that we need to do, or we don't see how critical the growing up is that we need to do. And so we are going through these circumstances where we're thinking, I'm, I'm like a, you know, I'm ready for whatever comes next. I'm destined for greatness. I, I don't need to be concerned about these things. And, and all the while, the people around us are saying, no, I think there's some growing up that still needs to take place there. There's some maturing that you still need to do. The good news in all of this is that we're not alone in that maturing process. God is at work to help us, to grow us, to mature us, to help us to see those things that would otherwise cause us to blow up circumstances and blow up relationships. And the difficult people and circumstances in our life are part of his toolkit, part of what he uses to mature us and to grow us and to strengthen us. And so I wonder whether you see any of 17-year-old Joseph in you. Do you see aspects of, uh, of, of his character, aspects of those needs in your life that you recognize, yeah, I think I need to, to, to do some growing up in my life as well. I, I, I look at Joseph and I can just, uh, often it's difficult to see in the immediate, but I, I can look back and I just think, When I was his age, I was so focused on my strengths and my dreams, I didn't see the limitations. I didn't see how much growing up I needed to do. I didn't see how not ready I was for the challenges of life. It just wasn't on my radar. And so it wasn't on my radar when God brought difficulties and circumstances and suffering and trials into my life to deal with those very things that I needed desperately to deal with. They just felt like they were coming out of left field. Why is God doing that? Why didn't he stop this? When all along he was graciously seeking to work on my character, to prepare me for what would come next, to deal with things that would otherwise hold me back. Today that's just not on our radar often. It's often not on the radar of parents. 
Parents, in kind of a reverse Joseph kind of way, can see the potential in their children. They can see the dreams that they have for their children or the dreams that their children have for their lives. And they can become so focused and preoccupied on potential and dreams that they don't give the kind of attention to faith and character that will be needed to get them there. Or even worse, they get there, they fulfill their dreams, but there's no moral compass. There's no faith to ground them. And so they arrive at this place of destiny, and having arrived there, they blow it up. Maybe it's a big public moral failure, but more often it is the more subtle moral deficiencies that ruin what would otherwise have been great potential. And so we just recognize great plans require your growth. If there are difficult people in your life, doesn't mean that God is doing something specifically specific with you, but it could be part of the process could be part of what he is using. It wasn't Joseph. Doesn't mean that's always what's happening. But that could be part of the equation. It's one of the things in God's toolkit. And so it's, it's good to just ask yourself. When, when something happens and you think, wow, this is totally out of left field. God couldn't have seen that. Maybe he's not good after all. Instead of asking those questions, ask the question, could God be using this unjust, difficult, or maybe even evil situation to shape me and form me? To deal with aspects of my character that would otherwise derail my potential. Derail God's plans for me. Could this actually be his gracious intervention in my life? Because in Joseph's life, it was clearly his, God's grace at work in his life. Now, maybe you ask those questions, and often it's difficult for us to see, but maybe you ask those questions and you say, no, there's no way there's a line between what I'm experiencing and what's going on in my character. That, that just, I, I don't see that. And, and maybe it isn't. And so that's where we go with the, 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 the next lesson in this story, because here we learn that great plans are bigger than you. That it's not just you that God is working on in these difficult circumstances. Often he is working on the people around you. There's things in their lives that he is trying to draw out. Uh, faith in their lives that he is trying to elicit. Uh, there can even be, you know, beyond just what you can see, there can be greater forces at work. And as uh, the story of Joseph unfolds, we see there are there are major uh, geopolitical forces even at work that are all part of God's hidden working, part of his great plan. Great plans are bigger than you. What's happening in your life right now, if scripture is any record, what's happening is bigger than just one person. He has other people uh, that he is also working on. Now, as we see the unfolding of Joseph's life and the people around him, you realize God is simultaneously working on him, his brothers, his father, uh, the, 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 the famine conditions that are going to come to uh, the, the, the Middle East it will all be intersecting. 
all of that is a part of things, and none of that is typically on our radar. That's why nobody can ever say, so that situation with the Irish guy in the kilt and he jumps the Brazilian runner, what was God doing there? What was it in his, is it, was it something in his life, the runner, was there some kind of issue going on that nobody knew about? No, you can't draw a one-to-one correspondence. God did this, therefore it was that. God's, God's plans are more complex than that. But what God is doing in this passage is giving us hints of that plan, simplifying it so that we can see it, so that when we find ourselves in other circumstances that we frankly can't make sense of, we can, we can by faith accept that God is working here, God has a plan, God is good, God is carrying out his purposes, and I don't need to throw up my arms and say, what is God thinking? because I realize it's bigger than me and bigger than what I might understand. Now, let's start with Joseph's father, Jacob. Do you know why Jacob gave him that special coat? Verse 3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, to back up a little bit, uh, Jacob had not one but two wives, and he also took his wives, uh, two of their, uh, their, their two servants as well. And if you think that that is an advertisement for polygamy, saying, oh, the, the, many people will say, oh, the Bible says this is the way to do it. No, no. You read the story, you actually look at the text, he... He's saying, this is, when, when this happens, these are the dreadful consequences that you can expect. Uh, jealousy, envy, hatred, conflict. It's, it's screaming to us, this is a very bad idea. Uh, but beyond that, Jacob had a problem with favoritism. He, for instance, with his uh, two uh, main wives, he... Love the younger one more than the older one. And then the older one, she has, uh, she has six children. The, uh, the two servants, they have uh, four children between them. And then finally, the younger wife, his favorite wife, she has a child. And guess what? Jacob loves him more than all the others. Now, Jacob should have known that that was a really bad idea. But you can, in your life, say, uh, he should have known that because he had experienced the pain of that. He knew a father who had shown favoritism to someone else. He saw the consequences. He saw the bitterness and hatred it created with his brother. He should have known that's a bad idea. And he may have even said, as maybe some of you have said, looking at your parents and the problems they met, I'm not going to be that kind of parent. And yet, you repeat the same mistakes. Unless you deal with the root of the problem, you often repeat the problem. You follow in the footsteps. And, and so this was a sin that, that had, had caused great bitterness between him and his brother Esau. Now it's repeated in his own family. 
And the question you're asking is, how on earth is this family, going back to the promise of Abraham, how on earth is this family going to be a blessing to the nations if they're tearing each other apart? If they're, if they're trying to kill each other and literally destroy their family, what kind of a blessing are they going to be to other people? And so God intervenes in a surprising way. He actually rigs the circumstances of their lives so that this sin, which has been continued from father to son and now being repeated in another generation, God intervenes and he says no more. And the way he says no more is by bringing this sin to light, bringing it to... uh, to, to its painful conclusion so that the people in, 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 this, uh, uh, in these circumstances hit rock bottom and cannot help but deal with this issue, which if it is left unaddressed, will destroy the entire family. So Jacob gives Joseph his little royal outfit and puts in doing so a little bullseye on the kid's back. So Joseph uh, tells his dreams to his brothers and so incites a hatred and a jealousy in them that was already burning hot. So Jacob sends his son Joseph on a little reconnaissance mission to check up on his brothers, further fueling the, the ugliness of the dynamic between them but sends them to a place that's far enough away, secluded enough, that nobody's going to see what happens. And so the scene is set for something very, very ugly to happen. But again, God is letting these circumstances end up in this place to see them run their course, to bring out this sin, to put them in a situation where they cannot avoid it any longer, where they cannot help but deal with it and deal with it decisively. As the rest of the story unfolds, it becomes clear these are all necessary steps. That this is actually going to lead to a resolution, but it's going to get better before it gets worse. They're going to have to hit rock bottom before they realize what is, uh, in God's eyes, a fatal flaw in this family line. And sometimes God's doing stuff that we just are not thinking about. He's in it for the long game. We're thinking in the moment. He's thinking about all of these different people and individuals and how their lives intersect. I just see my life and what's going on, and that's all I'm thinking about. He's thinking about faith He's thinking about character. He's thinking about what's underneath the surface. He's thinking about our heart. Frankly, we're usually just thinking about how comfortable we are, how easy things are. And so there's this disconnect in the the eyes through which we see our circumstances, and God seems crazy when we do that. And so God is just opening up the window, helping us to see things that are usually not on our radar. Now Moses told this story about Joseph to the Israelites as they were about to uh, uh, enter into the promised land. They knew that God had a promise for them, but they were asking, 
hey, why did we go to Egypt? What was that all about? That was really hard. Like, what kind of God are you? And, and, and they were about to face, you know, they, they had kind of sent some spies into the land and they said, boy, the people there didn't really ro roll out a red carpet for us. This looks like it's going to be unpleasant. How does that square with your promises to us, Lord? The same kind of uh, dilemma is brought out in The Fiddler on the Roof. Some of you have seen that. Tevye uh, says at one point, I know, I know, we're your chosen people. But couldn't you choose somebody else sometimes? You know, it just feels like if this is, you know, if this is plan A, God, I, I don't know. I'm kind of looking for another option. And you recognize that God's plans are bigger they go deeper, they're more complex, and we, we need to step back and recognize that that might be part of it. And I don't know where you're asking these questions in your life. I, I asked these questions when I first came to put my faith in Christ, and frankly, circumstances got worse, not better. And I thought, what is that? I've asked these questions at times of ministry where I think, God, I'm trying to do something good here. Why does things just keep getting harder? Why are there so many obstacles? Why is that? And, and maybe you are asking those questions of the circumstances of your life. I've even asked those questions as I've looked at the life of Jesus. You know, we just celebrated a baptism, and you might think, Paul, you're a, you know, your, your mind just is on a really pessimistic track. You're kind of just a negative guy. Maybe that's a conclusion you'll draw from this. But I'll be completely honest. Every time someone gets baptized, you know where my mind goes? It goes to the baptism of Jesus. You know, the baptism itself, Jesus' baptism is incredible. It's amazing, right? There, there are these incredible... Uh, manifestations of God's love. He speaks directly from heaven. You know, the spirit comes down like a dove. It's this great time of affirmation. The father says, you're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And Jesus has got to be feeling the affirmation of that, the recognition of his, his, his destiny, his place. He is the, the, the son. But do you know what happens like right after that? Do you know what comes di directly in the next verse? Mark 1.12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. You know what happens in the wilderness? He is tormented and attacked by Satan. Like, what are you thinking? I thought I was the beloved son. Why are you doing this to me? And the scripture answers my question. In Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Just like God, what God was doing with Joseph. God had a great plan for him, but Joseph was not ready for that plan. And with Jesus, it wasn't as if he had sins to confess. He was pure, sinless. But it didn't mean that he had some, didn't have some growing to do. If you recognize that the plan for your life, in Jesus' case, 
is to take on the greatest assault that Satan could bring at you to face the greatest temptation that you could ever deal with, you don't just throw someone into that. It, like Mike Tyson, our, your favorite philosopher once said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And so if you are going to be taking on Satan himself at the cross, you better get in the ring. You better get to, get to feel what it feels like to take a few hits. And having come through that, you develop confidence in the power of God. You, you develop confidence in the armor of God. And you need those times of training and difficulty. You need to take those hits in the ring to be prepared for the next battle. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the scriptures say that he has destined you for glory. He's given you an important mission and he has great plans for you. But great plans don't mean that the path will be easy. Great plans require you and me to grow up. They require us to deal with some of the issues in our life that will keep us from our potential, that will keep us from making a mess of things one day. And so if the Spirit is leading you into the wilderness, follow Jesus there. Look for him in the midst of that wilderness. Look to him for the strength that he can give. Submit to what the Spirit might be seeking to do in your life, to train you, to develop you, to strengthen you. How he might be seeking to nurture faith or patience or mercy or compassion. Ask God to teach you those lessons. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then know that, yeah, life is more complex than we often like to take it. And if those, some of those questions have kept you from the God who loves you, then submit those questions to Scripture. Bring them before God and ask for his guidance and direction. Because he's the one who redeems people like Jacob, like Joseph, like even the brothers. He's the one who can take a life like that and transform it. Purified, blessed. He's the one who can make your potential a reality. And he's the one whose forgiveness can close the door on an old life and open up the chapter of a new life. So let's look to him today and seek him in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are such a good and merciful God. Too often we tell you how things should be done rather than pause to understand what you're doing. Forgive us for the pride in thinking that we know better, thinking that we can dissect your workings and grade and evaluate them. Give us grace for the wilderness. Help us to learn the lessons that you can teach us there. Help us to cling to the promises of what you'll do in our lives. 
and find strength in Jesus when the road there seems rough. Father, help us to glorify you in our trials. And may they point others to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. For we ask you in his powerful name. Amen.